You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on January the 24th, 2024. That is the 40th anniversary of Apple's first incarnation of the Macintosh personal computer hitting stores. The Mac, which New York Times tech correspondent at the time, Eric Sandberg Dement, said would be destined for greater things had it been named the Granny Smith after the variety of apples first discovered by Maria Ann Smith, a.k.a. Granny Smith in Australia in 1868. And so we get to our extremely tenuous link to today's episode. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we will set out why it was a golden and delicious edition of the Tour Down Under. <laughs> and we'll get to the core of some other big stories developing in the world of cycling this week. Joining me to do all of that is the mustachioed maestro. We'll be talking about mustaches, Mitch Docker, who has had a very busy week at the Tour Down Under. Mitch, how are you doing? You're looking quite bronzed, I must say. Well, yeah, well, that's because I did ride across the TDU. That's become something for me the last couple of years. I um, head out from my hometown here in Lance, uh, Lancefield, well, Melbourne anyway, not too far away, and ride across there. Last year, I did it over five days. This year, I did it over three I thought it'd be a good idea just to challenge myself that bit more. Yet I'm doing, I'm I'm further away from the pro peloton. I'm doing less Ks. Yet I wanted to do it even harder. I'm sick and like I literally probably 80k into the first day. I was like, this was such a stupid idea. And of course I made it, but um, it was good. Like I'm fit. That's what you got to do. I did all my fitness in three days, and I'm back where I used to be. Well, maybe not back to world tour level, but I'm I'm at a good level. I was going to say, inching ever closer. Who knows, next year. Um, <laughs> do it in one day next year, and uh, maybe that comeback will be on. Joining us also, not from Down Under, but with Down Under as far as France is concerned, um, I think he's in Marseille. It's François Tomazo. François, how are you? Uh, not too bad, actually. Not too bad. Not too bad, yeah. In Down Under, Marseille. François, are you celebrating? Um, because last time you were on the podcast, it was a speculation... Uh, episode and we talked about how you not doing the Tour de France might allow French riders to end their drought in the Tour de France well I can tell you that this week um, you should be celebrating because France won the World Boulangerie Championships Mm -hmm. for the first time in 16 years ending a 16 year drought Um, did you know that did you follow the World Boulangerie Championship no I missed that but I I, but actually I saw a couple of uh stories on TV about, about an, a, a few, like cuisine, you know, uh, world championships and prizes that France had not won for uh, a while and, uh, you know, getting, you know, coming home. So, yeah, yeah, you know, keep posted. I mean, we're back, we're back. So, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the Tour de France. And I mean, I mean, if my prediction comes through, I think I really need to have a statue of, of me, you know, just in front of the uh, headquarters <laughs> of ASO or something, you know, as uh, we'll see, we'll see. I think <laughs> the, the baguettes might be coming home rather earlier than the, <laughs> than the Tour de France title does. Who won it then before, before France the last seven years? I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure, Mitch. But the favorite. I know the favorites this year were Taiwan and South Korea. As you can tell, I've been doing a real deep, deep dive into this. Um, 
Yeah, this in spite of the fact there's one boulangerie Francois per 2,000 inhabitants really? in France. Unfortunately, 1,985 of them are closed most of the time, um, in my experience. But yeah, yeah, they've been in the they've been in the doldrums, Francois. Lots of talk among the French um, boulangers interviewed by I think it was in Le Parisien. I read about this, um, talking about how inventive the Asian um, bakers are and um, how they can't com- compete on that front with their humble baguettes. It's like the same with wine. You know, if you look if you look at South African wine, Australian wines, uh, you know, American wines. Even Italian wines, I found out by doing the tourist guide uh, recently, they've all been actually invented and, uh, how, how could I say, monitored by French guys. I mean, the, 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 the biggest wines in Piedmont, for instance, they were planted in the mid-19th uh, century, uh, you know, by, by Cavour with, a, with the help of a French guy. So, I mean, we, we, we initiate things like the Tour de France and then we don't win it. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> and you become very, become very bad at things. Um, Chaps, we should talk about some cycling. Um, as tradition dictates, we're going to start with a news roundup, um, trying to keep them slightly more concise this year. First, we're duty-bound to journey to Benidorm on the Spanish Costa Blanca for some cyclocross. We had the latest rounds of the World Cup there at the weekend. And finally, we also had a bit of a surprise with Mathieu van der Poel not taking first place, mainly because of a crash and a saddleless, I think multiple crashes actually, Van der Poel, and a saddleless Wout van Aert finally breaking the MVDP hex to triumph. There was a rather unsavory postscript to that, which we may mention in a minute. First, we'll cover the women's race and tell you that that was won by Femke van Empel ahead of Puck Peterser. And we will also tell you that Selen del Carmen Alvarado's third place was enough to confirm her as the overall Women's World Cup winner with one round to spare. Chaps, I said an unsavory postscript. Did you happen, did you have the misfortune to see the E3? E3 Saxa Bank Classic, I think it's called now, isn't it? You chaps will know that this race has become infamous for its tasteless um, adverts over the years. Beginning, mm-hmm. I think, way back in sort of 2011, I think was the first mm-hmm. one. There were a couple, 2015, 2016, which one of them in particular was sort of based on Peter Sagan's bomb-pinching incident. Um, at, which race was that? Was that at Flanders? Or um, maybe the previous year, Genvevelgem. Mm-hmm. And um, well, they sort of outdid themselves this week, um, E3, by putting a, a cartoon on X, formerly known as Twitter, showing Van Art crossing the line, saddleless, as I said, which um, was a representation of real events, and then some allusion to, well, the LGBT. BTQ community um, enjoying this because obviously his sort of um, saddle, his seat post was sticking up in the air and um, yeah, Mathieu van der Poel fans supporting the sort of rainbow jersey, rainbow flag, um, thinking that this was great, him having a sort of seat post um, sticking towards (laughs) his backside. Um, You chaps, you laugh. Some people did find it funny. Um, However, being serious for a moment first of all the the race organization e3 did apologize i mean men's cycling there are no there are no openly gay riders and um i think that is a a a, a justifiable sort of concern that it's it has been a hostile environment possibly for um, any gay bi riders um women's scene is different um of course 
But this, as I say, this is an organization with a, a pretty terrible record of misogyny. So, you know, I saw some replies to this, even people who said online that they were mm. gay, they were bi, they found it funny. Um, you might say, well, give them the benefit of the doubt. I would say that this organization doesn't deserve the benefit of, of any doubt based on its past record. Any thought that they were laughing with the LGBTQ community and not at them um, is sort of removed, I would say, mm. by their record on these things. Well, it's it's obviously meant to be offensive, so it's not funny, you know. That's the thing. Yes, yes, <laughs> e exactly. And and you know, one does wonder as well. They've done this so many times that you know they are ob obviously sort of self-proclaimed um, agent provocateurs. But you kind mm -hmm. of wonder why they are doing it at this point because um, obviously the organisation. Um, well, th this race has sponsors, has corporate sponsors. Um, Saxo Bank, in this case, um, I struggle to believe that any kind of corporate sponsor would be on board with this or okay with this. No, can't be impressed at all. Yeah, it's it's a strange move, isn't it? You know, like, and they think sometimes I feel someone just doesn't think and it goes out, and they're like, oh, whoops. We didn't really think about that, did we? And, and also, as far as the U, UCI is concerned, chaps, I mean, this is a World Tour race. Um, you imagine, you know, a rider posting something like that? I mean, we've had incidents in the last couple of years of riders doing things in poor taste and being suspended by their teams or being fined, even being suspended by the UCI. Um, so, again, um, pretty difficult to understand we should move on chaps we'll go to the road first um the cyclocross season of course is winding down the road racing season is cranking back up or cranking up the season on the european mainland began this weekend in spain some of the top women top women's teams have been in mallorca mallorca for their version of the challenge mallorca Three rounds of that were won by Naomi Rueg of EF Education Cannondale, Magdalene Valier of EF Education Cannondale again, and Eleonora Gasparini of UAE Team ADQ. Just across the med on the Spanish mainland, Dylan Kronewegen won the Clásica Comunidad Valenciana and his Jayco teammate, Jayco Lula teammate, Michael Matthews won the Gran Premio Castellón. The men have also now moved to Mallorca and the first round of their challenge, Mallorca, will take place today, I believe. Uh, that's Wednesday. Big few days for Grand Tour wildcards, uh, Total Energy and Uno X have got the nod for the Tour de France, while Team Polti Cometa, formerly Aeolo, VF Group Bardiani CSF Faizane and Tudor Pro Cycling have been invited to the Giro d'Italia. The Giro d'Italia, whose seventh stage, we should remind you, is the Tudor individual time trial from Foligno to Perugia. So a real shock that they got the wild card there. Um, also remember that Lotto <laughs> Destiny and Israel Premier Tech go to the Tour de France by virtue of their ranking position, while Lotto have waived their right to race the Giro and only Israel will go. Um, Francois, these decisions, wild card announcements, they always used to be sort of shrouded in controversy. There always used to be uproar. There was for a period. Um, there was always one party, one team that was very disappointed indeed. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case these days. Um, I would suggest that Total Energy and Uno X were shoe-ins pretty much, weren't they? 
there used to be more uh, rooms available, like, you know, four teams could be in, you know, get wide cards in the old days. And it seems to be, uh, you know, they're, they're trimming down on the, on the wide cards uh, gradually. So, and I mean, uh, Total Energy, I think since Bernardo launched the team in 2000, they've done all the Tour de France. I couldn't see, uh, you know, whatever the, their results. I mean, they're part of, it's like Cofidis doing the Welta. I mean, you know, you, yeah, they're, they're, there was no way the Total Energy was not going to be at the, the Tour de France. And uh, and obviously, um, uh, you know, uh, Uno, uh, ASO, you know, apparently, you know, a good relationship with Uno X. Uh, I've always heard uh, Christian Prudhomme speak, uh, uh, you know, kindly um, about them and uh, the way they were. So that, 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 was not, that was not a surprise by any means. And, and, and these days, there, there used to be problems when you had French teams left out of the Tour de France. And so the French press would say, oh, we should have taken uh, French teams like the Italians are doing the, on the Giro or the Spaniards on the... But, but these days, and most of the French teams are either on the World Tour or or our total energy and you are sure to be doing it. So, I mean, the controversies used to crop up from a French team being left out of it, but it's not a, a, the case anymore. So I, I don't think that there, there, there were too many, uh, you know, doubts about who would be picked for the tour. Your mate, uh, Jean-René Bernardot, uh, François, the boss of Total Energy, who I saw in an interview this week, suggested that ketones and some teams using ketones was the only reason that professional cycling wasn't the biggest sport in the world because of the ambiguity, the moral ambiguity that this created, which, um, yeah, made me, um, well, raised an <laughs> eyebrow, raised a chuckle. Chaps, a footnote to the wildcard <laughs> announcement Uno X, Uno X Mobility announced in the wake of their invitation that Tor Hussov would replace Jens Haugland as the general manager of the team. Haugland had previously held the role of general manager for both Uno X, the teams, because they have a women's team and a development team as well, and Uno X, Norway, the company, car washes, petrol stations, and so on. Um, Jens, we've had him on the podcast, and he is a very colourful, larger than life character, and he's been a real breath of fresh air as general manager of that team he is we believe staying with the company but um, has been replaced by Tor Hussov slightly disappointing news I think Jens himself will be slightly disappointed um, with that news we'll maybe speak to him in the next few weeks um, staying in Norway we should inform listeners that Edvald Boasenhagen um, well the Edvald Boasenhagen Ultras among our listeners there are one or two of them um, will be delighted that their idol will ride for Decathlon Decathlon AG2R La Mondiale in 2024 rumors had had it that ebh was close to retiring not so meanwhile sadly it is the end of the road for our good friend sometime guest latterly astana rider joe dombrowski who announced last night that he mm. is going to end his pro career at age 32 joe won giro stage in 2021 tour of utah stage and the gc in 2015 and a 2019 tour of Utah stage. Joe, as I said, announced his retirement just last night. And, um, well, this morning, the morning after, he sent us this voice message. Hi, everyone. It's Joe Dombrowski. As you may have seen, I announced my retirement as a professional cyclist yesterday. It was something I thought a lot about before I said anything to the public. And actually, it was something that was not that easy to actually say, to be honest. I had a laugh last night. My wife and I were eating dinner in the kitchen and 
my doorbell rang and packages don't normally come in the evening. And when we get a doorbell buzz at that time of day, usually it's for uh, doping control. And sure enough, it was uh, for anti-doping. And it was just funny because we were all sitting there around the kitchen table because it took a while. The doping control officer noticed that my phone was really buzzing all the time. And I said, yeah, I mean, I I announced that I was going to retire as a cyclist an hour ago. The whole thing was just a bit ironic, really, because it was a nice surprise and and a nice feeling that um, I received so many messages from so many different people who have been a part of the journey. I'm sort of just getting to all that now and just want to say thank you to everyone who, you know, has reached out and thanks for following along during my career. Yeah, I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. I don't know exactly what that is yet, but I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that finding my next challenge. So, thanks a lot. Mitch, a feeling that you know, well, have experienced once. Um the morning <laughs> after, the morning after, it, well, with you it was it was a choreographed retirement, wasn't it? You knew that it was going to be at Paris Bay, perhaps slightly different, but um can you remember that feeling, mm. that sensation? I, I really can. I really can. I went to Roubaix. Um, I didn't finish Roubaix. And then we went back to the hotel and I had sort of, uh, I got up early. I remember waking up early and I was staying at um, not my team hotel. I was staying at my, um, at the Green Edge Hotel. So I went back and sort of partied on with those boys and all the AF boys sort of went home so Durbo said to me come back and stay at our hotel so I stayed at my old hotel Leppel Bed just outside of Ghent in uh in Mella I woke up and I walk up to the front room early and I sort of had this time to myself at it wasn't probably that early compared to these days at eight o'clock in the morning but pro hours it was super early and I was sitting in the front room and I really had this release this feeling like this weight was off my shoulders when you know it's time it feels like a weight and where, however long that is, you know, for me, it was from the Roubaix, you know, the normal Roubaix time. So April onwards, I'd made the announcement. And even though, because I was talking to Simon Geshka over at um, Tour Down Under this year, I said, you're going to have some great moments this year because there's stuff in races that you hate, but you can weirdly flip it and enjoy it. You're like, oh, this is the last time I'll have to do this crosswind sector in an eco tour or Bing Bank or whatever the hell the name is now. You know, you're like, how cool is this? I'll never be back in this crap. So there are moments like that you can enjoy, but there was this weight that got lifted off my shoulder. I distinctly remember that morning being like, it's done. How nice is this? You know, but of course, then, you know, it's followed very soon after to the 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 scariness of like what next you know what now so that comes soon after but i definitely had a moment of like yeah this is nice this is cool i'm done very different me people always talk about going out on their own terms and that scenario you just described of knowing that it's going to be your last you know crosswind section at the eneco tour or whatever that applies to someone who's announced or at least got it clear in their own mind that they are going to retire on a certain date joe's situation is is more of a sort of hybrid i would suggest i mean i've been speaking to him throughout the winter where um at, at times well he was he was certainly keen to find mm. a, another team um it wasn't I think he didn't feel that it was a matter of life or death. He he was sort of reconciled to the idea that he might have to retire and was okay with that. And yeah, having heard from him this morning and been speaking to him over the last few weeks, I think he he is he does feel slightly disoriented. Um, 
and so it's interesting to hear you say that going out on your own terms was important because that is something that's often mentioned I mean even I'm thinking of Mark Cavendish now and all the sort of speculation and debate about whether he should shouldn't do another year and that was one of the things that has been mentioned in relation to that that's come up in conversations I've had with members of his entourage um, should he do what you did in effect well, look, Cavendish is maybe in a different scenario where he can sort of do that. Um, and I think he will always sort of find a contract, whether it will be the contract he is happy with. Mm. Joe may be in a different scenario where, you know, he probably wasn't willing to ride for nothing, you know. And, you know, to a degree, I read the room early on in the year and went, you know, it could be pretty difficult at the end of this year for me to get another contract. Maybe I could if I scratched around and got something for a very low weight. I sort of... I think the way I came up with it, whether this was a question or not, was do I have anything more to achieve? I sort of went, not really. You know, I know I'm not going to win Roubaix as much as I'd love to. That's probably out of my realm. Have I sort of done everything that I had hoped and am I happy with it? Again, I I didn't win Roubaix. I didn't, you know, win the Tour de France. I didn't ride the Tour de France. So there were some things that I was sort of like, cool, but I realized that probably wasn't going to happen in the next year with one last contract. So I was like, I'm actually pretty happy where I'm at. Why don't I try and go out on my own terms rather than get to October and then realize it's sort of forced on me? So sort of got ahead of the eight ball um, early on. And I think the the change of the date of Roubaix really suited me because it was like, I ultimately can finish with my favorite race no matter what happens. And that was a really nice scenario for me. And it really, even though the, the race got taken from me, it sort of, it just showed me the light. I was like, you know what? This is it. You can't have it any better than this, mate. You can finish on your favorite race. So it doesn't happen like that for a lot of people because, you know, as you described with Joe, I don't actually know Joe's story. Um, I'd be interested to hear how that's sort of formulated. But you can come to the end of the year very quickly and realize, shit, I haven't got something. And, you know, teams are sort of waiting for you. And this scenario, this is something, when I say the weight off your shoulders, this is something I do not miss. I do not miss this living on the edge of your seat year in, year out, or even at the very luxury of two years. So that's something that Joe will will certainly love moving into that next phase. Yeah, one, one thing, I've um, there've been a few riders this winter who have been in this situation that I've sort of had a bit of a running conversation with and, and the doubt as well about whether, I mean, to put it bluntly, whether your agent is speaking to the right people and having the right conversations and just that question mark. Is there a team out there who I'm not aware of who might take me if, for example, um, I present my case in the right way or my agent does? And um, yeah, I can I can imagine that that is a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, we also mentioned before in the, in another pod, but uh, and you, you, I think you, Daniel, mentioned the fact that the, the uh, age... Uh, the average age in the world tour is, is going down uh, every year. And the, when you pass 30 these days, is, is it becoming more and more difficult to find a team? When we have, we'll, we'll discuss, you know, the new Mexicans, <laughs> the superstars, you know, the, the new uh, sensation of uh, world cycling. But every year that there's more and more young guys coming in. And is, is that a problem for the older ones? I I don't know. It's just a question. I don't have the answer to that. But I, my, my impression at the moment is that, that there's a there's a tendency to hire more, you know, younger guys and to get rid of the older guys, uh, you know, in spite of their experience. I mean, what's an Ivan being uh, an exception, obviously? I mean, look at you, Francois. 
know, we've kicked you out of our Tour de France podcast. <laughs> eh? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I went on my own journey. <laughs> yeah, he did. You know, he like did. The, 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 the viscose with my Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. Your own Michelin-starred terms. Um, chaps, I was just going to mention one more thing in the news roundup before we conclude um, part one. Um, about a week ago, La Gazzetta dello Sport did something that they do pretty much every year where they produced a list of... Um, professional cycling's top earners um, with Tadej Pogacar mm -hmm. number one, six million euros. Primoz Roglic, 4.5 in second place. Jonas Vingegaard, 4 million. Mathieu van der Poel, 4 million. Wout van Aert, 3.5 million. Remco Venepoel, 2.8 million. Um, Tom Pidcock, 2.7 million. Adam Yates, 2.7 million. Egan Bernal, uh, 2.5 million. And Carlos Rodriguez, 2.5 million. Um, Jonathan Vorters tweeted that this was basically all nonsense. Um, it does tickle me as well that um, particularly La Gazzetta always publishes a list of this nature every year based i'm pretty sure on a lot of speculation um they will be having conversations with agents agents aren't the best source in these cases because obviously it's in their interest to suggest i don't know their riders are earning more than they are or or not earning as much as they are and um it just reminds me chaps um i I saw, I sort of got a peek behind the curtain of one of these features being written for a different media outlet many years ago at the Tour de France. I think it was the 2004 Tour de France. Um, one of our colleagues, you both know him. Um, I'm not going to give his name. We'll call him Bruce. Um, Bruce, one day at the, at the um, Tour de France, one day in the press room, I, I could see him sort of shuffling along the pews in the Tour de France press room. And he was asking everyone pretty much the same question. He was just giving sort of riders' names on oh, Menchov. How much do you think Menchov mm -hmm. earns? How much do you think um, um, Contador earns? And so on and so on. And he got to me and, and I said, so Bruce, what, what, what's this for? And he said, oh, I'm just doing an article, um, Freebs, about... Um, about the top earners in the sport. Anyway, I saw this particular journalist a day or so later in the start village looking pretty downcast. And I said, what's, what's wrong, Bruce? And he said, oh, that article didn't go down too well. And apparently Matt White, another good friend of the podcast, who I think was writing for Cofidis that year, um, had seen Bruce on the other side of the start village that morning and shouted out to him words to the effect of, Bruce, where did you get those f figures from, mate? Out of your f ass. <laughs> <laughs> a pretty fair representation of, of how these stories are often created. But it did make me think, Mitch, how much awareness is there um, of what other guys are earning in the peloton? No. Is it different to any other job? I, 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 no, I suspect it's probably similar to other jobs where you might know, you might have a colleague who is quite open about these things and will tell you and others who will never tell you it's very much like that and i think as you as you go on i was going to mention this about the managers before as you go on you sort of need a manager less and less because you start to understand what you're worth early on i think managers are very good for riders because they actually don't know how much they're worth and how much they can go for and oh wow i'm worth that great if we can get that awesome and at the end of your career you sort of go you know what i'm probably can't get that you know i probably can't get this so let's try and go in the middle and I think also, this is slightly off the wages, is that I think you can pitch yourself better at the end of your career to go back on the experience role. I just don't think managers pitch the experience role well enough. They keep saying what the writers can and can't do. Yeah, this guy's this, this guy's that. And it's like, as a writer, you're like, cool, look, I know sort of what I can do. What you need yeah. to sell me is what I can do off the bike, what I can add to the team off the bike and in the race as a, as a captain, as, a, as the experience. 
I don't think that gets that that story gets told well enough um, from the manager side of things. They're more just like, look, he can win this race, or he can do it the classics, or he can do this in the tour. You mm-hmm. know, and obviously most teams go, well, he hasn't done that for ten years, so we know that's bullshit. But they just keep pushing that that out. Um, but when it comes to wages, especially my own experience towards the end of my career, let's say the last three or four years, most of the most of the negotiations I did myself when it came to the final dealings of the contracts and that I was like cool handball it to my manager I didn't want to do that but I think that personal touch was more important when you're speaking to teams yeah one person that is probably happy about the stories is probably Patrick Lefebvre because uh, you know with Evan earning you know <laughs> at least twice less than uh, than well more than twice less than Pogacar and almost twice less than Vingegaard shows that you know the reputation of stinginess from uh, you know, Patrick is, is is deserved and you know he, he manages the team tight <laughs> yeah. which is uh, <laughs> That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel. Babbel is a language learning app that you can dip in and out of as often as you like, and it will help you to put into place the building blocks of a new language. Maybe you're off to one of the Grand Tours or the Classics this season and you want to be able to speak a bit of the language while you're there. Or at least do a little bit more than just ordering a drink or asking the way to the beach. Or perhaps you just want to brush up on a language that you learned at school, one which has slipped in the years since. Well, Babbel will assess your current level of knowledge and build on what you already know. You can learn one of 14 different languages, including English, if English isn't your first language. Choose from Italian, French, Spanish, the obvious ones, but also Danish, Norwegian, Polish, Swedish, Portuguese. In fact, Babbel could help you converse with about 100% of the World Tour Peloton, if my maths are right. The lessons have been designed by real people to give you the knowledge that you'll need to hold real conversations, so you won't be learning any kind of meaningless computer-generated phrases. Babbel's a bit like having your own personal language coach, giving you lessons of a duration and frequency that suit you, and you can make real progress with only 10 minutes a day. If you do want to go deeper, I can recommend Babbel Live as well, which is real-life language classes that are held online, but that's for a little further down the line if you're just getting started. In the meantime, if you want to give language learning a go with Babbel, take advantage of their amazing offer to cycling podcast listeners and you can learn a new language or improve your English because right now Babbel is offering six months free with every six months subscription that's purchased as long as you use the promo code cycle24. Go to babbel.com slash play and use the promo code cycle24 to get an extra six months free on top of a six month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash play with the promo code CYCLE24. That's CYCLE and the number's 24. Babbel, your guaranteed path towards speaking a new language. And we will put those details in the show notes. Ah, Lionel, a long time no, I'm not going to say see, because I did see you recently, um, even in person as well as virtually. I've seen rather a lot of you virtually recently. I bought you a snowflake oat milkachino, Daniel, lest you forget. You did. Happy New Year, by the way. Um, yeah, went down the tree as well. <laughs> Happy New Year to you, Lionel. Um, Lionel, since we've got you here, there have been a few questions, um, not only in the last week, but over the last few weeks, few months, about you and the podcast. You've not been 
um, hosting the podcast as often as was once the case i believe that you'd like to share something today with the listeners well yeah i think we should be open and transparent with the listeners who've supported us some some of them since the very beginning 10 years ago yeah i intended to have a break over the winter and over the winter over christmas really i came to a decision and that is uh, having spent 21 so didn't want to do the podcast with me anymore <laughs> <No>. and, um, <laughs> and you're delivering this well, message from uh, under the floorboards in my house in an orange boiler suit ah uh, no i no it doesn't relate to you at all daniel it's got it's got nothing it's got nothing to do with uh, with with you it's it's purely a decision that, I, that i've made having spent 21 of the past 25 summers away from home covering the Tour de France. I don't want to do that this year. I've decided it's time for a change of focus. So you're going to do the Giro I'm, and the Vuelta I'm this putting, year? <laughs> I'm putting down the mic. I'm, Or rather, I'm passing on the mic. I'm passing on the mic. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that my commitment to the cycling podcast is going to be diminished in any way. Uh, in fact, I think it will help me to focus my energies in a more constructive way, uh, behind the scenes I suppose I found it quite difficult splitting my focus between the journalism side of what we do that you know the, the most important thing which is the podcast and, and what we put out but there has been uh, you know quite a significant development over 10 years building uh, what has become a, a, a business a company and that requires maintenance and work and focus as well and I just can't split my brain in two and I find it hard to go from one to the other I find it hard to try and do both at once and so I feel that uh, in order to be more effective and in order to kind of uh, reduce some of my own internal conflict and tension about my working life uh, I need to focus on one thing or the other and I've chosen to uh, step back into the shadow somewhat I'll be in HQ, you know, counting the bidons and stacking them neatly, making sure the logos all face out in the right way. And uh, rather than just kind of take a year off from the Tour de France or a period off from the Tour de France, um, I feel that it's better for the cycling podcast and better for the listeners uh, if we pass the microphone on and and create a, a, a new team. That won't happen if I'm kind of hogging one of the seats, I feel. That's my decision. I'm going to step into, uh, step behind the curtain, Daniel, but I will, we'll still talk regularly. I mean, daily, probably. Well, Lionel, we'll, we'll get back to my other co-host for this week in just a minute, but I think what you're saying is that you're not, well, you're not targeting the Giro and the Vuelta instead of the Tour. That's not what you're announcing. You're also not announcing that you are <laughs> leaving the cycling podcast to start, I don't know, the ski jumping podcast, um, doing a reverse Roglic. Um, Lionel, if, I'm sure the listeners might have some more questions. You are going to maybe address some of the questions they will have in the one minute past 11 um, cappuccino the newsletter on Substack this week. Some of our listeners might want to put questions, comment on your post with questions. You can ask me questions on Twitter X. I'm not. I won't guarantee that I'll answer all of them, particularly those that are, um, if they're impertinent or impolite, I won't answer them. Um, but we will try to be as um, well transparent as possible about what's going to happen over the next few months. Yeah, there's obviously been a lot of change over the last couple of years on the Cycling Podcast. We want to ensure that as it evolves, it remains true to the founding spirit, really, which is friends who happen to be journalists talking about cycling, or journalists who happen to be friends whichever way you want to look at it and so this isn't uh, this isn't an end of anything this is a 
I suppose, a, a new beginning. We've been active in the January transfer window, haven't we, Daniel? We'll have some plans to announce shortly. And as I say, if you do have a question about the cycling podcast, drop us a line. Look out for the 1101 Cappuccino or drop us a line, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Uh, thank you, everyone who has uh, sent a comment my way. Uh, all of your comments have been deeply appreciated over the years, and I'm not going to be a complete stranger. I will uh, still be here at the Cycling Podcast HQ. If you need any bidons counting, Daniel. Or ads reading. So, gentlemen, we have already talked about some of the racing in the last few days, some of the racing in Spain, for example. Of course, the main event of the last week or so was the tour down under first event on both the women's world tour calendar and the men's um just a quick recap the women's race was won by sarah gigante of ag insurance sudal and she won the last stage or the, the decisive stage on willunga hill is it willunga hill mitch or old willunga hill willunga yeah willunga willunga hill oh. but just you just say willunga okay. why, why do i think old willunga hill I think. I mean, I always used to. I think it I is that. I think it actually is the old Wollonga Hill. I don't know why. I think there's there's another way up there, a main road, and that's probably the old. That's the okay. old road up. But no one would refer to it as the old Wollonga. Okay. Anyway, Sarah Gigante won there, and um, which wrapped up the GC for her. Other stage winners in the women's race were Cecily Utrup Ludwig of FDJ Suez and Ali Wollaston of AG Insurance Sudal. The men's stage winners, I'll go the stage winners first. Um, Sam Wellsford won the first stage. Isaac Del Toro, more about him um, later. Sam Wellsford won the third stage and the fourth stage. And then we got into the last two, the hilly decisive stages. They were won by Oscar Onley. And then Stephen Williams won the last stage on Mount Lofty, which gave him victory overall for Israel Premier Tech. Mitch, you were there, um, as you are always at the tour down under, as previously discussed. Um, I said in my intro that it was golden and a delicious addition. Um, general consensus, I've not been to the tour down under, but general consensus among the people I speak to is that Stuart O'Grady, as race director, he's been race director for a couple of years now, is doing a good job there. And this event is one that continues to grow and thrive. You guys would absolutely love the press room. <laughs> there is a fridge with ice cream in it. There's a there's another fridge with an assortment of drinks, beer, wine. They bring in pizza. I was like, this is ridiculous. There's Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi, and it's in the bottom of the Hilton. It was there's a there's a barista there purely for the press room, making coffees. Like nothing more to be said about TDU. That's done. Um, <laughs> It's fun. The, the being a being a press, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, a media media person there working on, you know, a journalist. I dare dare I say I'm that. But going into the start village is super fun. There's like three of you in there and you just cruise in, cruise around and anytime the riders want to get away from you, they're in these vans and you literally walk up to the window and just knock, 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 and they look across you and you're like interview and they're like god all right you know you don't have to deal with the press officers you don't have to deal with the buses with the mirror windows it's brilliant so you guys are missing out um the race the race itself let's just before we get to the race the special thing about down under is it's in adelaide obviously but it's in the hilton it's one spot so 
all these festival vibes build up around the city. And people try and ask me, is it the same as the tour? I'm like, so different to the tour because, you know, I've only ever been on the other side of the fence and the tour moves. It's the rolling, you know, the rolling show. The show rolls on, everyone's there, you're moving around. And it's great when you're there in that town, but TDU, especially with the brands, they build up these pop-ups and they've got events going every night and the riders, because it's early season, we had Sam Wellsford after he won... Um, his final stage on his birthday pop into a live interview that we had you know an hour after the stage finish so i was just spruiking it up going we've got sam wilson tonight coming into the the map specialized pop-up it's like when could this ever happen in another race i can't think of another race where this happens the crowds are super awesome anyone who's around just loves it and frosts off the atmosphere so it's a big pitch for TDU, um, but it really is a really, really fun week um, and worthwhile, and there's heaps of cyclists there. When it gets to the race, for me, I've, I do find the race quite boring in terms of it's, it is an early season race and there's not guns firing. And, and the one day, for me anyway, that where fireworks could have gone, the, the stage from Murray Bridge, there was no wind. So that became a, a boring sort of sprint stage. But I think Stuart O'Grady is doing an awesome thing, which he added in this year, the Wollonga Hill, which traditionally used to be the final deciding stage. He put in the Mount Lofty stage, which last year featured as the final stage. They took Wollonga Hill out. This year, they added both. So Saturday, you had Wollonga Hill. Then Sunday, you had the Mount Lofty. So it wasn't done and dusted at Wollonga on Saturday. And we used to come in and do a ceremonial crit on the Sunday and... Now it was lofty. Like, you know, you still have to, pre- to defend the title in Mount Lofty. Um, I think the women's race, too, was a very, was a really good addition. Really exciting coming into Wollonga Hill. I really enjoyed that as well. And again, we, we were able to tap into to interviewing Sarah Gigante. We had the whole AG Insurance team there as well, plus the Life Plus Wahoo girls there. So it's, it's just a great access to the riders, not only for me as a journalist, but for the fans. You get to see these guys. They go on all the rides with the sponsors. They're mixing in. Um, it's a it's a super good atmosphere. And it's a really. I ask the riders a, a lot of them. One of my questions I ask them, which will be coming up on my own podcast at Talking Luft, why is it good starting the season out here at Tour Down Under? Like, what's what's the benefit? And they all said it. It's the obvious things: the weather, you know, the the one hotel, the relaxed atmosphere. Even though it doesn't seem half as relaxed when I did it, but even though comparative to what the other races are, they get an element of it. It is a toned down version, and there's an L, a race at the end. But that comes back to Stuart O'Grady understanding being a rider and understanding what they need, not putting an uphill start in the beginning of the season, not putting epic stages, understanding there still needs to be exciting racing, but keeping it in the back end. So I agree with you. Stewie's done an awesome job taking over from Mike Turter. Mitch, you mentioned there the the sort of uh, the sort of softish, they, they contrived to have a, a softish start to the season. The... Stages aren't too long. Um, the you know Willunga Hills, I think, three point four kilometres. Mount Lofty um, is, is not a long climb either. Um, but does that mean, and this will bring us on to some of the sort of stars and star performances of the week, that one should be careful of interpreting this race with one's tore down under goggles on, um, i.e., reading too much into this race. Either the sprints, because the sprints. Um, they, you might say they're, they're quite different from some of the sprints that the Peloton will face in a few weeks' time in Europe. You know, the roads are wide in Australia, um, in the Tour Down Under. Um, 
you know, Sam Wellsford winning three stages here does not necessarily mean that he's going to be the dominant sprinter. And then, you know, that applies as well to some of the the climbing performances and the GC performances we may have seen the last few days. Uh, Isaac Del Toro is not necessarily the next Tadej Pogacar. But generally speaking, do you think there is a a danger that we read too much into what happens at this race? Uh... Yes and no. I know the sitting on the fence, but look, I would say that yes a few years ago. But I think the importance of every single race these days and, you know, the two and down and under, you know, gaining points and just getting a winner, it's much harder to do what, you know, Stevie Williams did and even what Wellsford did. You know, Caleb Ewan, he wants to start with Green Edge on the right foot. And he wasn't, no one was gifting any victories there. Viviani as well. You know, Ineos were, were lining it out. And I've got to give credit to the Bora train. That is a well-drilled train. And I think they started the season well. And I I believe that they will go on and do great things this year because of that train with Mullen and also Van Poppel. If you take Wellsford out of it, his, his performance was amazing as well. But if you look at how well that train was drilled and the performance they did and how well they stuck together, I think they're going to go on to do great things this year throughout the season with Sam. Sam's rolling in now with huge confidence. Plus, he's got that raw power. You saw it. He, he was able to step out, go mano a mano against Caleb Ewan and just put him away cleanly. So as we know, Caleb Ewan's no, you know, he's no... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? He's no um, amateur. He's no you know slog. He's he knows what to do. So I was really impressed with that. When it comes to Del Toro, I thought he was going to walk away with this. I was like, that's it. That stage was again like what the you know, Israel is doing this lead out for Corbin Strong. He and like guys are just doing peelers. He steps off them like like they're just like me riding out there doing my ride across to Adelaide. So that was it was quite surprising for me that he didn't feature in those as much as I thought in those final two stages. I got caught up in the hype as well. But I wouldn't underestimate these results. Let's let's rewind sort of five, maybe even ten years ago. Yes, a hundred percent agree with you. Don't get too carried mm. away with this, but things have changed. Remember the addition Remember the edition when Greipel won? How many stages was it? Six or seven stages? That was his sort of first, that was his arrival on the world stage. Mm. Um and in fairness, he did he did deliver on that um, over the next two or three years. Do you know how many stages he's won of Tour Down Under? Lots, I would suggest. Lots. <laughs> 18. 18. He's the most. 18. He's got the most Struth, stages of Struth, Down Under. Copper. <laughs> so, it, um, yes, it's, it's, it's gone up a notch. For sure, it's definitely gone up a notch. But the good thing about it is O'Grady has kept it to its true tradition of two down under let's not get too carried away let's make it hard enough but let's keep it still a first season a first race of the season unfortunately i've never been to the tour down under i was invited a couple of times but it just didn't fit into my my season i was doing a lot of skiing at the time so i couldn't be at both uh, the skiing in europe and uh, tour down under but i think as you say it's probably great that a tour like that and with that kind of atmosphere is, is at the start of the uh, of the the world tour because it reminds me what you're telling me uh, uh, of another pretty young event which is the the Canada the Canadian Grand Grand Prix in Quebec in Montreal where you have also one hotel easy access to the to the riders and the fact that from a lot of riders is the last uh, race of the season because they're not going to the Worlds or they're not going to the World Cup well obviously because they're there uh, you know uh, means you you've got a different atmosphere a, a more relaxed atmosphere 
And at the same time, there are events like the Sudan under that there was lots of, of doubts and skepticism when they were launched, and now uh, their you know their their place in the world tour is not uh, disputed anymore. I mean, so you know, to start in Australia, finish in Canada with different uh, continents, different atmosphere, I think is great for the sport, and also, I mean, Stephen Williams, uh, the guys who win this type of races like, you know, Stephen Williams. Uh, there are guys who, who I mean, uh, uh, what did Williams win the Tour of Norway last year? I, I seem to remember. I mean, the Arctic race. Well, I mean, these these are the, the Williams is the type of rider that, you know, to win that sort of, of, of events. And uh, uh, of course, he, he will probably never win a Grand Tour. But, you know, this, uh, I think that's fine. I mean, the, 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 there's, the, you need this kind of, you know, one week event. Uh, you know, designed for uh, this this type of riders. Uh, uh, you know, at a special moment in the season, and I, I always follow the Tour Down Under with with great interest. I think it's uh, I think it gives clues, you know, to what's going to happen in the in, in the rest of the season. Maybe not on the on the classics, or maybe not on the Grand Tours. But 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 if you if you look at the World Tour calendar, you know, uh, at large, uh, yes, I think it gives indications of what to expect. Well, it was an incredible win by um, Stephen Williams Chaps. I mean, this is a rider who, if you remember, had an absolutely catastrophic first season as a professional rider. He'd had a brilliant uh, last year as an amateur 2018 in races like the um, Baby Giro and then turned pro with Bahrain um, Merida, I think they were called at that time. I think he did eight race days in his first year had uh, one of these knee injuries that no one could diagnose um, properly and they eventually got to the bottom of it he had a part of a bone or a bone fabella bone removed but at the end of his first two years uh Bahrain Merida I would suggest that he had he not been in a team managed by a a British coach um Rod Ellingworth British director sportive and um, he might have fallen off the edge of the earth as far as professional cycling is concerned um Rod gave him another contract another two years and well he's he's demonstrated certainly since then that he very much um belongs at the top level um, won um, in places like Croatia, won a stage of the Tour of Switzerland um, last year as well. And you mentioned, one of you mentioned points. Um, that was a vital, well, it was a brilliant week for Israel Premier Tech as far as UCI points are concerned. They're a team that's obviously, um, well, it's been relegated once already and it's very much in the sort of fight to get promoted again. Um, Francois, I was going to ask you, I was going to throw you this hot potato. Um, Israel Premier Tech, obviously, this is a team that sort of in a, is a kind of de facto um, national team as far as their their owner is concerned. Sylvan Adams wants them to represent Israel. Um, we are, of course, in the midst of a, a war in the Middle East and between Israel and well Hamas, and. Uh, very difficult to well very difficult to know how to approach this topic um the riders themselves there isn't a single rider on israel premier tech i was i would guess i would suggest who would not um want that the fighting to stop the war to stop um we've said many times that these riders unfortunately and this applies to a lot of the sponsors in the World Tour, they are sort of pawns and they don't have a lot of choice a lot of the time. Um, it's not as though they can 
mm, choose any world tour team to represent. There are a couple of them. Pogacar, Vingegaard could could represent any team, but most of them have to go where there is a spot where there is a possibility to ride. Um, so you know they are not sort of diplomats in tracksuits um, to use a, a term that were, used to be used in East Germany um, of their own volition, but they do have Israel on their jersey. Um, there's been bit of talk in the last couple of weeks about what's going to happen with Israel um, at the Olympics for example in Paris um, this year whether the same sanctions should be placed on Israel as have been placed on Russia for example um, as a result of what's happening in the Middle East. Um, Francois what are your feelings when you see an Israel Premier Tech rider um, winning a race like this and how do you think how do you think they might feel about it? It's, well, not funny, but what's, what's interesting is if you look at the world tour the way it was before the, the war uh, broke up, it was kind of the, the Abraham agreements between the, uh, the, some of the Emirates and Israel. Remember that before a mass truck, you know, Israel was on the verge of signing an agreement with uh, Saudi Arabia and had already uh, signed deals and peace treaties with, uh, you know, uh, some of the Arabic countries around. Uh, and, and, and in the second world tour, you had Israel and you had the UAE and, uh, and Bahrain. I mean, it was kind of a reflection of the, the state of the world at that stage, which was that, yeah, you could have two teams, you know, represented, uh, you know, Emirates and also a, a team representing Israel and all those teams competing together, you know, which in, in itself was already, and we, we probably never saw it this way uh, uh, enough, but was was kind of a... a hopeful message in a way, yeah. Yeah, it was a hopeful message. But when you think that in football, Israel uh, uh, play in... Uh, play in in the European zone because to avoid playing in the Asian uh, zone for a long time. So there, there was a, a political issue that, that cycling maybe unwittingly had solved. Does the new situation change anything? I really don't think that fr from my point of view, from the point of view of the fan and probably from the point of view of the riders and from the point of view of a lot of people into cycling, never really saw UAE team Emirates as the, the national team of the, uh, of the Emirates or Bahrain. It sounds like it's just sponsors in a way, you know, and I, I don't think Israel Premier Tech was ever seen, maybe maybe it's seen by its, uh, you know, owners as, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a flagship. That's the thing with this team. This team, um, people might see the name and think that it is a government organ or entirely sponsored by the government. That isn't, that's not the case. I mean, Sylvan Adams has been on record to say that the, the, team gets a pitiful amount um, from the Israeli government and this is really his kind of passion project he feels very strongly about Israel and the role that it played for example for his family in the, the lives of his family and consequently he wants to tell the world what a, an incredible place Israel is. In the same time if he wanted to make life easier for himself he just take Israel out of the team name and calls it Premier Tech and nobody would care you know that it's an Israeli team or, or, or well it's, 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 you know, it's Israeli or Canadian or whatever you want to call it. But anyway, and about Israel and the Olympics, I mean, it's, we're going a little bit away, but you mentioned that, in my opinion, given, given the IOC policy, if I say on politics generally, it's very, very rare that IOC actually ban a country. I mean, they're very conservative uh, towards that. And, I, and, and in the same time, the French government is supporting Israel in the same time by asking for a you know, two-state solution. So I, I really can't see you know, Israel being banned from the Olympics. I mean, to me, there's a 0.5% chance of that happening anyway. 
the Russian um, foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, and recently, well, he he highlighted the the disparity as he sees it between the treatment of Russia. Um, well, he he called it an outrageous disparity between the way IOC has treated Russia and the way they are not treating um, Israel. There were doping issues as well with Russia. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, of course, you have the invasion of Ukraine, but before that. The Sochi, uh, you know, doping scandal was uh, was one of the, you know, greatest state, uh, you know, monitored doping scandal ever. Mm-hmm. I don't think Israel has, has had, you know, doping issues in the past. I mean, to that extent. So, I mean, Lavrov has, has been, well, of course, diplomatic, but also a little bit hypocritical there. Mitch, we're going to move on from this, but I just wanted to ask you um, whether you think there'd be any sort of queasiness on the part of the riders. You know, you're good friends, I think, with, well, for example, Sam Bewley, who's the director sportif uh, at down under last week and various other members of that team um this is a as i said this is a position a lot of riders currently find themselves in they're representing whether it's a state or a company with um you know some question marks um some more than others um by their name by their reputation i think i mentioned before on the podcast i had a conversation with a rider about a year ago who rise for one of these teams and sort of ask my opinion about it and I said the best thing you could probably do is try to inform yourself read as much as possible um, and then see if it alters the fee your feeling about riding for this team riding with their name on your jersey and um, and then you know take action from there and of course as I said initially that sort of presupposes that the riders has options to go elsewhere. I mean, there aren't too many places in the in the world tour at the moment where you can go where the, there aren't there isn't some sort of whiff of of sport washing. But do you think the riders think about this, or is or do you think on the on the whole they try to block this out? Yeah, like even if they're aware of it, to be honest, um, I think a lot of riders are really just in their own world. The DS is a bit different. You know, being older, more sort of matured, and understand what's what what the sponsors sort of entail, and you know what what you know, like even Mike Woods, you know, last year he was, well, even now still he's he's really trying to go you know carbon free and, and make some moves, you know, make some big statements and things like that. Just becoming a bit more aware of what we're doing in the cycling world, and you know, it's it's a bit more than the racing, and you can can get super absorbed in just like being at the at the top peak performance and whatever i don't care who sponsors me if that is a company is that you know we were sponsored by orica you know in green edge you know this is a massive you know mining explosives company and for whatever reason they decided to sponsor you know green edge to clean up their image i don't know what exactly that was all about but you know you just sort of went you rolled with it you're like yeah sweet we got orica on a jersey you know um but you weren't that aware of it as a young guy and as you get older you become more aware of what the world is and a bit Mm -hmm. more sort of uh exactly what you said just becoming a bit more educated about it and able to answer questions about it and and have your own education around it look i think i'm going to speak on behalf of my mates that you spoke about sam buley and you know daryl limpy and george bennett i know these guys are at that point in their career and they are certainly more educated about it but the younger guys i don't know you know even like a guy like nick schiltz he's a bit younger so you know, maybe they're still in that point of their career, like, great, you know, this, I've got a team and they're paying me and, you know, I could be out of here in a year's time. So that's just sort of how it is. And in this particular case, 
there's also there's the added difficulty of the yawning disparity between what one side in this war is saying and reporting about the reality of of, of events and what the other side is saying and uh, as a sort of humble observer um sitting in another continent or being a professional bike rider it's just really really difficult to establish what the facts are and then to make your decisions on the basis of that well chaps we have covered some of the main stories uh from the tour down under the winner of the race the star sprinter of the race we didn't talk about his mustache mitch um looks mm-hmm. as though it could have been inspired by yours um but i know this is a it's a common look in australia isn't it more common than in other parts of the world well look Mark's look at look at Bottas now he's uh i was at the i was at the sideline i got a funny story for you i was at the sideline <laughs> Stage two finish of the women's. It was up in, um, it was not far from Sterling, or maybe it was in Sterling. It was up there doing a pub crawl, actually. Shout out to my own Life in the Peloton pub crawl. And we said, you know what? The women's race is finishing down the road. Let's go look at it. This guy came up shaking my hand. Oh, I can't believe I'm seeing you here. And blah, blah, blah. And then, like, halfway through the conversation, he's like talking about this gravel event. And he's talking about car racing. And I'm like, mate. Who is this guy? Uh, who do you th- who do you th- I said just I just hit him with it. like who do you think I am? And he's like, Oh you Bottas, Bottas and I'm like, Nah mate, I'm not. Oh, um, I thought I thought you were gonna say that, that was that was Bottas sort of no, you then. This guy was like and then I'm like he's like, Oh, so then who are you? And I was like, I well, I'm I'm no one, mate. He's like, Oh, yeah, see ya and he just turns his back and walks off and I was like, Mate, he copied me. I was the original. He just walked off. He was done. I was I was no one to him. So the the mullet and the mo, it's coming back strong. I'm not gonna say I was the first, but yeah, you know, I wanna say one of the first in the Peloton. There's a question to you know, about the you know, aerodynamics of uh, the moustache. I mean that does the moustache create slipstream or something, or does it create an unfair advantage when you sprint? I that there should be a study on the research. Oh, the UCI is going to come down on that for sure, Francois. <laughs> for sure. Well, we've now covered moustaches as well. We've covered Wellsford. Um, we've covered Williams. We're going to move on now to the rider who was the revelation of the race. Uh, stage winner, 19-year-old stage winner, Isaac Del Toro of UAE Team Emirates and this felt like a big moment chaps the way he took his stage win in a manner we don't often see these days sort of uh, kind of finishers uh, attack in the last was the last three or four kilometers of a, of a hilly stage so it, it sort of demonstrated an, an explosive speed um, and also his ability to climb um, this rider was also the winner of the Tour de l'Avenir last year which as we know um, has a fantastic record of, of sort of showcasing the, the coming men in professional cycling so a, a bit was already known about Isaac Del Toro a little bit more is known now. Chaps, before we discuss him, I did try to find out a little bit more about Isaac Del Toro from one of his compatriots um, earlier in the week. Uh, Goga Ruiz Sandoval is a commentator on cycling. She commentates on cycling for Colombian TV, Caracol. She lives in the United States. However, Goga is Mexican. Um, I've known her for a number of years now, so I thought she was ideally placed to tell us a bit about her compatriot, Isaac Del Toro, starting with where he's from in Mexico. So here is Goga. Ensenada is a border town. It has had not such a good reputation sometimes because of that. 
you know, there's bad commerce and crossing from Mexico to the U.S. During the last 15 years, it's been uh, a better place to live. It's a town that is proud uh, because they are uh, connecting uh, pass-through to the United States. It has these problems, you know, because there's violence sometimes. Border towns in Mexico, uh, they are a little bit chaotic, but, but nowadays they are better. It's not a common place to find an athlete, an elite athlete. In this case, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. Looking at the history of Mexican cyclists and the ones who have had success, there doesn't seem to be any real sort of geographical kind of hotspot or fulcrum of the cycling movement in Mexico in that in the sense that they've come from kind of everywhere uh Raul Alcala was from near Monterrey I think Miguel Arroyo was from near Mexico City I believe but is there any is there any particular region where cycling has a, a sort of strong culture and a strong following in Mexico has there been historically it's mostly in the middle of the country not so much in the north there has been some some good cyclists in the north they are strong and a good height most of those athletes go to the United States to to race example of that is uh, Eder Freire he's doing good in the states um, but in the it's in the middle of the country where you can find like a huge culture around the cycling culture. León, Querétaro, that's those states in Mexico, they, they have a lot of cyclists. Tlaxcala is another one, the birth town of uh, Miguel Arroyo. Sometimes you can find some good athletes in Jalisco, in Michoacán. Those are more uh, towards the Pacific side of the country. But there's not like like you would find in in Colombia. There's two regions, and Mexico. It's you can find a lot of places, but mostly from the center part to the north. When uh, I first heard of Isaac del Toro last year, and he won the Tour de l'Avenir, I kind of I hoped Gogo that he was going to be from somewhere. He was going to be born 2,200 meters above sea level. And then yeah. I, I looked at where he was, where he was born, and it was at zero meters above sea level. Um, how long have you known about him and how surprised have you been? I, I found out uh, about the project where he came from uh, three years ago because we in Mexico, we, we don't have any federation, as you know. Uh, there's been uh, a little efforts but not like big efforts but small ones that bring some of these athletes to have some kind of uh, schedule if you if you will but this this is sponsor Remonex they they decided to take eight or ten I think it was riders from 14 15 16 years old and they took them to Europe mostly um, to race in Belgium and uh, Italy. They stay there in San Marino. Isaac del Toro is the first one that comes out from this uh, effort that it's not as known in Mexico because before Isaac we didn't have any other example, recent example. I know in Mexico they, there's a lot of fun, fans for uh, pro cycling, you know, as everybody else in the world. But it's right now it, this is. Uh, making a, a commotion really i knew he was good he has above average height from a for a mexican at least i didn't know how strong his mentality was uh, and that's what has impressed me the most because he's 19 or 20 and you know that 
physically he can probably do a lot of things, but mentally is the, the the most impressive thing that I can I can say. He analyzes a lot of races. He doesn't have any doubts. He's very proactive, and uh, I think that shows right now. And he and that shows while he was growing up with this project. When he won his stage in the Tour Down Under, did it create any kind of splash or um, was there much interest has there been much interest in the last few days yeah of course i am still friends with a lot of journalists in mexico and they had forgotten about cycling a long time ago but i know i know it has it has caused a little uh commotion because he's young and um we knew about the some results from last year, so it was not like out of the blue. Some some people that follow cycling, they, they knew who he was already because of the Bio Giro and the Tour del Avenir. It's going to happen the same as it happens in Colombia sometimes. If you only have uh, good results, then you will be covered. But if not, uh, you, you will tend to be a little bit forgotten. This is good for Mexico. Uh, the first example that we have in a long time. So younger, younger cyclists will be looking to see what can what, what can they do. And Iremonics, they they are still growing. I would hope that they understand that they can become just like uh, the other the other teams that provide cyclists to to the World Tour, like the other American teams that they bring some cyclists to the World Tour. Raul Alcala was the best Mexican cyclist ever, I guess most people would agree. He was he finished, I think, um, in the top 10 of the Tour three times and won stages in the Tour. How big did cycling become in Mexico in those years, in the 80s? Or how much did people follow him? When I started doing this thing uh, <laughs> as a journalist, yeah. he, he was my, my inspiration. He was the pretext that I had with my, my bosses to go cover cycling. He was an idol in Mexico. We had a, a lot of big races in Mexico in those years in the first fight of the 90s. He and uh, Miguel Arroyo, that was a little bit younger, they moved masses. It was, it was incredible. I remember co- covering the Ruta Mexico in those years. They had a lot of support from the Mexican government and they had a lot of uh, budget. So they, they could bring um, the biggest stars of, of those years I remember one of those uh, races. They they brought uh, Greg Lemon. Uh, they brought Gianni Buño. There were some um, big stars in those years, and I hope I can find some some pictures and I can send it to you for so you 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 see. But it was masses. It was just like you see right now in in Colombia. It was was yeah. great. So, fellas, our breakout performance from Isaac del Toro. We see these every now and again. We've seen more and more of them over the last few years. The, the, the ages have got younger. Francois, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast um, this sort of trend of teams looking for younger and younger riders. Um, I, I had a look uh, a few days ago after del Toro's um, stage win at the number of riders aged under 23 who have won world tour races or top level world tour and hc races in every season since about the year 2000 if you go back to seasons like the year 2000 there was there were maybe i think 
two, one or two riders in the year 2000 um, under the age of 23 won World Tour or HC races. If you look at the last couple of years, the average is around 22, 23 riders under the age of 23 per year are winning World Tour and HC races. Um, but it did make me think, chaps, we can probably all remember the, some of the names, some of these performances we've seen. And I feel as when you're a younger sort of journalist or younger observer of the sport, these performances have a bigger impact and you you have a tendency to extrapolate even more sort of extravagantly and and think that you know this 20 year old that's won this stage of Etoile de Bessege is going to win 15 tours de France and then with a bit of age and experience you realize that um that that's not always how it pans out I, I remembered a few um Francois, I remembered when Thomas Lufqvist, uh, 20-year-old Thomas Lufqvist, the Swedish rider, won the Circuit de la South in 2004. And that seemed like a, a, a sort of um, a seismic moment for the sport. Um, I remember a Russian rider, Mikhail Ignatiev, in riding for Tinkov, a, a very sort of young Tinkov team, 2007 winning. I think he won La Guelia on the stage of the Tour of the Med um, in spectacular fashion. And everyone sort of tipping him for multiple Grand Tour victories. These were riders who never got anywhere near um, mm. a Grand Tour victory. Um, we hope that things are different for Isaac Del Toro, but can you chaps remember um, any sort of performances from very young riders that really struck you and caused you to project, prognosticate fantastic success for them? Well, Miguel Indurain, <laughs> but, he, yeah, oh, but, really? he did, but he did deliver, the deliver, you know, I saw him win the Tour de Vaucluse when he was like very young and uh, and I thought, oh, this guy is great and, and unfortunately, well, he went to, to do lots of um, big things in the future but only remember because you know you know all about the, about him, uh, Jan Ulrich, I, I remember Bernard Hinault, the, the world champion of bad predictions, you know, uh, saying that uh, Ulrich would win seven Tour de France and, and, and the thing is, we, uh, it it kind of goes up and down, but there was these these tradition or even me I, I, I was you know there was the, this common sense that was saying that the the, 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 the good the, the right age to win a grand tour for instance was 27 and that's that's even when I was a runner myself when I was you know uh, a sports guy uh, the, the coaches were always telling you oh you, you, you when you reach 27 that's the age when you know you get you get to the peak. That is backed up by figures from, so I think there's a graphic on pro cycling stats. If you look uh, to the, there's a sort of bell curve. It's quite clear that 27 is the magic age mm -hmm. um, in mm. terms of UCI points. Yeah. Even promising young riders in uh, up to, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago were doing their first Grand Tour. The, the, you know, all the teams were saying, no, don't go too far, don't overdo it. And they were like, Indurain is a, is, a, is, a, is a case like, you know, he did the first couple of Tour de France one stage and didn't do much else because the team said oh uh, we, we don't want you to do that and then comes Bernal comes uh, Pogacar and, and everything changes but it's the same remember when Quintana won uh, started to shine he was pretty young we said oh he's going to win uh, that many tours and then we said the same with Bernal and uh, and with Pogacar we, we, we don't know if Pogacar is going to win any more grand tours well we hope he, he does but that, that idea that because you win at a very young age you're going to win seven or eight even for the 
great guys is not confirmed by facts. I mean, and, and then also to put things back into perspective, the greats of the greats, like Fausto Coppi won his first Giro at the age of 20. So uh, it's it's not like it's really new. The, the, what's new is the amount of young guys coming up every year. You have the impression that every Tour de l'Avenir winner is going to win the Tour de France. But if that's the case, we'll have a different Tour de France winner every year. <laughs> the funny thing is, uh, I was trying to think of some just then, but the funny thing is you don't remember them because they don't become champions. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. who are those guys? And I'm trying to remember myself now, but I, they don't come to mind straight away. Have you, um, but Mitch, have you, have you ever, has, has there ever been someone at a training camp where just merely at a training camp on the basis of the first group rise that they've done in a team, you've thought this guy is... Well, Michael Storer, Michael Storer is, and he is still a, he is still a very big talent. Um, and mm. even, you know, Lucas Hamilton, these guys, mm. you know, in, within, within the Australian realms were sort of in that they came to the Green Edge training camps as under 23s and they were, uh, and Jai Hindley to a degree was sort of, I wouldn't say behind them, but not as sort of predicted as to do as much. These guys are, and still are very, you know, big big talents but they've just for whatever reason haven't gone on and Jai on the other hand has so uh, they're two just straight off hand I remember coming in and Stora I even rumoured Stora and he was his numbers are incredible and he was all over it and I was just like well this guy's gonna he's gonna do something crazy he has done some great stuff but maybe not what I initially thought and even I think Lucas Hamilton as well he could do so much more but there's so many other elements isn't there yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch uh, Del Toro. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of rider he develops into because, as as I said in Down Under, he showcased a couple of different abilities. Pogacar-esque in his sort of style, the sort of narrow bars, very sort of dynamic-looking um, climbing style when he was out of the saddle. Um, just looking at the uh, Tour de l'Avenir last year, um, he lost a lot of time. He was riding for the Mexican team. They lost a lot of time in the team time trial, two minutes, and um, gained it back in the high mountains but he was he was only third on a very difficult mountain time trial 11 kilometers eight percent and the winner of that was Matthew Ricciatello who's riding for Israel and yeah there's been a little bit of hype about him there's been sort of interest in his performances but no one's really talking about him as the next you know multiple Tour de France winner Del Toro is living in San Marino chaps and his one of his mentors thus far has been Piotr Ugromov um, a very good climate in his day in the early 90s that you will know, Francois. And also Goga in the audio clip we heard there mentioned Raul Alcala, who you will also have covered, Francois. Yeah, uh, I remember Raul Alcala pretty well because he was seen, well, he was uh, with PDM of, uh, of uh, uh, dubious fame at the time. And he, he, it's true that when Raul Alcala started to win races and be impressive, even in uh, in the Tour de France, and and you know, performing well in time trials when he was seen as a as a climber in the first place, there was there were little bits of doubts about his performances and the performances of others in the team at the time. The, the interesting thing I think about Del Toro and and and, and the, the the kind of young riders we see uh, you know emerging is that they're all rounders. I mean, there used to be you, you you saw great climbers uh, emerge and you saw great sprinters emerge, but these days the, the, these young guys who win the Tour de l'Avenir and who perf- perform straight away on the world tour they seem to be jack of all trades they see they seem to be a, a, able to do anything that's what makes them evanapool pagachar all these guys if you have an impression they can win classics they can win grand tours they, they're not specialists anymore and there's, there's kind of a new breed 
of riders coming up. They are far more versatile than they used to be. And that's what's uh, interesting, in my opinion. Chaps, we are going to conclude today's episode um, by talking about something else. We're going to pivot away from the Tour Down Under just briefly um, to talk about well, one team that was out down under competing at um, Tour Down Under competing pretty well with their Ecuadorian rider Jonathan Narvaez and there's been a lot of talk this winter about Ineos Grenadiers and about how they are going to pivot or need to pivot in the coming year um, there, were, there were a few reports this week pointing out that Dave Brailsford um, has now officially formally moved away from the team in the sense that he is um, no longer team principal. He is now director of sports INEOS. INEOS, as we know, are about to take over well a quarter of Manchester United football team. Brailsford hasn't been replaced in the sense that um, INEOS Grenadiers don't have a team principal now. However, there have been various additions, um, a bit of a reshuffle. They have a new CEO called John Allett. Mitch, he's one of your countrymen. He's Australian. Um, he first got involved in cycling with Bahrain when it was Bahrain McLaren. Um, as I say, he's going to be CEO of INEOS Grenadiers. And yesterday, that was... Tuesday, he spoke to me and a few other members of the media about how he sees the team's short-term, medium-term, long-term future and also what Brailsford's role is going to be. Let's just hear a little bit of that now. Steve's the godfather of this team, the founder of the team. It's actually a privilege that we still have him accessible to the team. His role is as director of Ineos Sport and so he clearly has responsibility across a variety of different sports and performance of all of them, not just cycling, but it speaks highly of the performance of this particular team that the person given responsibility for performance across that very impressive group of other sports teams has come from a cycling background. And I think that cycling itself should actually be proud of that. You know, we've now got somebody from from our world, the world of cycling, involved in what is one of the most famous football teams of the world. And I think that says a lot about what cycling's been able to do over the last 10 or 15 years. Our roots play an important part in this, but we are a you know performance first GC team that is looking to innovate and and be at the kind of the zenith of this sport. That's always been the case. I, I think sometimes people mistakenly think that we've had a diffusion of focus, but that's always been the DNA of the team. That's continued from our previous owners into the Ineos ownership, and the ambition is the same. So with that comes comes an identity that I think certainly to those inside the team is crystal clear. And that is that we're a GC team, first and foremost, and want to be on the top step of the podium. That's it. What you may not realise is that cycling as a sport and as a as a pastime is one that is very important to Ineos as a, as a culture. It's very important to the to the three owners of, of Ineos. They're all keen cyclists. They're very engaged in the sport. They're very engaged in what we do. I wouldn't say that any one of the three of them is more engaged than the others. I was with the owners last week with Dave and Jean-Claude, their ability to stay across all of the different sports teams and indeed all of their businesses is is extraordinary. It's, it's a privilege to have an audience with people like that who have such proven track records of performance across all walks of life. And we're very lucky to have them as owners. There, there is no question of Ineos's commitment to cycling. There is no time horizon put on that that commitment. Ineos has a great track record of acquiring companies and sports teams and generating value and holding on to those companies and sports teams in the long term. That's it. 
Well, chaps, um, gonna have some uh, a couple of hot takes from you guys on Ineos, what they need to do, what they will do in a second. We heard from John Allett there. Um, Scott Draw is the other kind of performance director who's come in there, who I think is going to be a key figure. But just listen to him yesterday, chaps. Didn't give too much away, John, but um, he talked there about Brailsford and Brailsford's role, the sort of spectre of Brailsford, how much it is going to loom over the team. Um, I would put it to you that that is pretty key going forward because um, we all know that, for example, Rod Ellingworth left the team, resigned from the team uh, a couple of months ago. I think if you were to wind the clock back a year ago and asked anyone at Ineos what Dave Brailsford's influence and role were going to be in 2023, they would have told you one thing and what the reality was over the next few months was quite different. I think there were periods where they thought he was going to be more involved than he was. And then there was a moment at the Tour de France when he arrived at the Tour de France, visited the team and looked at what their transfer plans were when he was a bit more involved than they maybe would have wanted and would have liked. And they can, as I said, they can have that idea for how things are going to work but that needs to be the reality, I would suggest. Mitch, what do you think? Just slightly away from that, but is there, there's a massive loss of identity with that team. You know, for so long there, it was just, it was a team to follow. It was a team that had the goals, they had the dream, you know, to live that sort of British dream to take the tour and, you know, everything else wrapped around with it, you know, with Cav there. And, and we all know the story, I don't need to repeat it, but a massive loss of identity the last few years and that massive exodus of those you know key sort of british riders that came through the system you know teo gagenhart it was a bit of a surprise for me to see him step away and just to see that that change you know it made me understand that behind the covers things weren't right there um and you've just exposed that clearly there but an aussie could be the could be the fix oh, i won't i won't doubt that that's for sure but that is something that needs to, to to happen not only for ineos but for i think for cycling i don't want to say like a romantic here but they're great you've got to have them back where they were back at the grand tours sort of challenging things has been the last couple of years they we need that extra sort of push again from ineos to to push the to push you know the, the two top at the moment you know yumbo and uae they still got an impressive squad if you look at the, you know, uh, who, who they got with Pitcock, Carlos Rodriguez and, uh, and a few others. Uh, but as, as Mitch said, you know, the loss of identity is, is, is uh, I think, is a big blow. They started like with a commando spirit, like, you know, we'll go for it in five years, we'll win the Tour de France. Nobody believed it. They did that. And then after a while, it's only logical that you have a kind of an anticlimax, a kind of a hangover. But there is one strange phenomenon that I can't really explain, but uh, it's not only with cycling, but sports teams in general sometimes are embodied by someone like Quickstep is uh, is Patrick Lefebvre. Uh, we were discussing Total Energies, Jean-René Bernardo, uh, Groupama FDJs, Marc Madio. I mean, you, you, you always link, uh, you know, the movie star is a Zebio Unsway, and then he took over from, you know, but he was there from the start. When you lose, like, the father image that Braceford was, sometimes you have the impression the team loses itself. It doesn't know where it's, go- where it's going. Uh, the, 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 the goals get far, you know, less clear than they used to be. I think that's, that's, that's what's been happening with Ineos. We were mentioning the Tour Down Under, uh, you know, Stephen Williams, uh, Oscar Only. In these Team Sky days, these guys would have been with Team Sky. I mean, you, you were a British rider. There was no other choice, you know, and there were, there were no other, other options. 
things. And now it's great that you know British Cycling has new new strengths and new uh, young up and coming riders. But how how come that these guys are not with Ineos? They, they they would have been in the past. I think yeah, there's a little bit of a lack of focus, a, a lack of identity, as you said, because managers and uh, DSs have been coming and going. I don't exactly know what the solution is. I, uh, You mentioned the new CEO. They've got a new guy as well. I don't know exactly what his role is because, I mean, they, they, you've got all these names coming up, but you, you can't tell what they're doing. But uh, Jean-Claude Blanc is, is up there somewhere in, in the, you know, in the hierarchy. He's sort of on the Brailsford level. I think he he is, um, well, he'll be very involved with Manchester United is the expectation, I think. Um, a lot less involved with the cycling team. It, they have got this grand vision and this goes back to when Jim Radcliffe took over the team. Ineos 2.0, if, if Team Sky 1.0 was about sort of marginal gains, which became this kind of um, catchphrase, which um, I think Brailsford regretted using. But the Ineos 2.0 or Team Sky 2.0 was going to be about this kind of cross-pollination of different of expertise in different sports and you know you speak to people in the organization and they say that that has been really successful I mean well from their point of view they found it really really useful um the input from sailing I think they had members of the Ineos coaching staff were in the dressing room for the All Blacks World Cup semi-final and they've taken a lot from that but they're a team that needs to, wants to win the Tour de France. And the issue is that they don't currently have anyone who looks as though they're going to be able to win the Tour de France soon. There was a lot of speculation about Remco Avonapol in the winter. I've been told on good authority that they tried very hard to get Remco. Especially with his low wages, you know, as we learned from the Gazetta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They tried very hard and they reached a roadblock with that. Interestingly, they also tried to to get Primoz Roglic. The conversations about Roglic and with a view to recruiting Roglic, they sort of stopped around about the time when um, I mentioned Brailsford coming to the tour and the team pivoting on a few riders. We've talked about this in recent weeks. Um, Carlos Verona is the name that, or is the case that most listeners will be familiar with. They decided they were going to sign him. Then they, they told him and his agent that they changed their mind. And this was the point at which the Roglic conversation sort of stopped as well. There was a lot of talk amongst sort of agents in that period that kind of Ineos and their plans, their vision, couldn't be trusted there seemed to be this sort of indecision whether Roglic's agent decided well that was why it was a better idea to go to Bora Hansgrohe or not but in terms of the timing, the sort of coincidence of the two things, they certainly matched up. Yeah, I still think that when, when you, you need stability, even in a, in a company, you know, like we, we talk about company culture, well, when you you kind of lose Bryceford because he's everywhere but nowhere in the same time, you know, when you lose Rod Ellingworth, when you lose Shane Sutton for the reasons we know, when you lose Fran Miller, I mean, all those core people in uh, Team Sky of the beginnings, what's left of the, the team culture and the team tradition? And I, I'm, I'm convince it leaves uh, the riders a little bit out of fo focus it's the same with football for reasons unknown to uh, how could I say statistics or figures teams with a history of winning a competition are better on the day than teams with the you know more money more guys but without the culture of the of the of the, the sport or the race and then team Ineos I, 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 I'm sure would benefit from 
keeping a little bit of tradition going. Otherwise, they, they, they might lose themselves. On the same note, what happens to a team a bit closer to me? What happens to a team like EF Education, you know, without Jonathan Vorders? You know, on a different sort of note, that team that's got a completely reliant on sort of culture. And without Jonathan Vorders, I wonder what that team would really be. You know, say what you will about JV. Um, you know, and personally, you know, there were up and down moments with him working with him, but he's created this unique culture there without him does where is that team i don't know yeah there aren't too many examples i can think of mitch where teams have successfully reinvented themselves or rediscovered another emblematic a new emblematic figure and sort of changed the identity of their project i mean you know you could talk about sort of rubber bank becoming Yumba Visma, but I don't think any of us really think that that is the same team. No. Um, and that's a really good example. Both absolutely right on that. And um, the Vortis example is a good one, I would suggest. Um, you know, Group Amar without Madio. I know Yvonne Madio has retired this year, but Mark is still very much in situ. Well, uh, Francois, it's about time. It's still breakfast time in Marseille, so you'll probably be wa- wanting to go out and, one, and, and get yourself a world championship winning baguette. I hate baguette. I've always hated baguette. So no, no way. No baguettes for me. <laughs> baguettes generally are just the devil's bread, aren't they? Um, just r- rip the top off your mouth and they're not really good on any particular score. Yeah, they're good an hour, within the hour after they were uh, baked. But if you buy them a couple of hours later mm. or the next day, forget it. It's absolute crap. <laughs> <laughs> They're good. They're good for sort of staving off intruders to your home. Um, they're good as they're useful as weapons, but that's about it. It's it's bedtime as he rubs his eyes and looks as though he's had a hard week. I've got to get some dinner. Yes, some very late dinner. But the tennis is on here, so it's uh, Australian Open. So there'll be a game kicking off in a minute, and I'm going to go enjoy another cold beer, as you guys have seen, and um, some dinner. So, but great chatting with you guys. No dry January for Mitch Docker. He's earned a beer. He's earned a beer after the week he's had. Um, Chaps, it's been a delight as always. We'll be hearing from both of you in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Thank you very much. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.